This podcast is a presentation of Gateway Fellowship, Paulsville, Washington. Experience community, find hope. Check us out at gatewayfellowship.com. Well, I wasn't sure I was going to be back after uh, the ferry situation. I don't know how you all live with that on an ongoing basis. I was in line to come over this morning bright and early, getting here early because I knew. I've heard the stories about the ferry, and I'm literally like waiting for them to open the toll lines, like, like I'm in the backup part because I haven't opened. That's how early I got there this morning. And then they canceled the first two ferries. And I was like, I'm just going to drive myself around. So my friend MapQuest and I just, or Maps or whatever it's called, I don't know, I just plugged it in and we're, and we're here. So I'm glad to be back because it was uh, a little worrisome this morning to me. Um, but uh, how exciting to get to kick off a time in Genesis. I've done a thing. It might be a bad thing. I don't know. But you can't give a Bible teacher Genesis 1 and 2 and then say, you know, hit the high points. (laughs) So I, I have pulled out the things that I just think we have to talk about, and I hope that you're ready this morning. Uh, Pastor Tom is not with us this morning, so normally like I'm, I'm clued in to like the time and he's sitting there and my friend Shelly's not over in kids ministry this morning because I'm always thinking about the kids. So I'm like, oh man, those two accountability checks are not here. I know the next service is coming in, so I'm going to try to be good, but we got, we got a lot of work to do in Genesis this morning. So I hope you brought your Bibles or an app in some way that you can read along. We didn't put all of the beginning point here on the screen. So you can uh, look with whatever you brought with you, or you can just listen as we hit some of the highlights in Genesis. And as you're opening your Bibles to Genesis 1, you know, it's, it's interesting because a lot of times as Christians, you, you might hear something along the lines of, well, how could you just believe in and then fill in the blank with any miracle from the Bible, right? How could you believe that? And then whatever it is that, that someone's thinking about. But, you know, if Genesis 1-1 is true, if there is a God, then every miracle of Scripture is at least possible. And if there is a God, and if Genesis 1-1 is true, then every miracle in Scripture is actually, I would argue, probable. Because we're going to see the nature of that God today as we look at Genesis chapter one and just into the beginning of chapter two. So we're going to take a little time. Genesis, Genesis one, one and two. Let's, let's read that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And if you look at the beginning of verse three, six, 9, 14, and 20, you just kind of skim down those verses, you will see that they all begin this way, and God said. And it is followed by all the things that he then spoke into existence, light and the waters and the foundation of the earth. And then he started filling these frameworks with vegetation and animals. And let's pick it back up with verse 26 of chapter one. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish 
in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and sent them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed on it, and they will be yours for food. And all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. What a beautiful passage that introduces us to our God and to the work that he did. In fact, I love the beginning of Genesis. It's, it kinda, we've kind of landed on this idea of, a, of, of calling Genesis narrative prose, right? Because it, it's poetic. The first two chapters of Genesis are very poetic. You can even hear that in the way it said, like, let us make a man in, in our image, in the image of God, he created them. Like you hear kind of the repetition, like kind of the, like the, the poetic pattern of that. But it's also narrative because it is saying true things about real people at a particular point in time. So it's not just poetry. It's not just imagery. It is beautifully saying the things that God did really do. And so here it is. We are going to look at four things in this section of scripture that we're going to see about God. And the first thing that we have to see and accept is that God is the author of creation. That he alone is eternal. He is before all things. He is the source of all things. Isaiah emphasizes this in chapter 40, verse 28 where he is going to speak of this, and I think we have a slide for it, but if not, you can just listen. Do you not know, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He is the everlasting God. And I love how Isaiah clarifies this. It's not that God rested on day seven because he was tired or weary. He was particularly resting from the creating that he was doing. So let's hold on to that because we're going we're gonna to revisit that in a few moments. But see, this idea of God being an everlasting God, the, the idea of eternality is difficult for us because we are creatures of time. Like think about the events and the things of your generation. Now, see, I was born in 83, so like end of 80s, beginning of 90s are really like the childhood memories that I remember most. So 
I don't even remember what this toy was called. I tried to Google it, and I think it has like new fancy names because everything has new fancy names now. But like, it was the toy you put on your ankle, and then you like, skip. Yeah, oh, is that what it was called? Because I really thought I made that up. But apparently it was called the skip. Now it's called like the skippity dippity or something like that. I was like, okay. But like, like that was, like I was an only child. So like I didn't, like if I had to have neighbors available to like jump rope with me, I didn't have siblings, right? And so man, I would go outside for hours and just hop this thing and see like how many I could get it before I, you know, cracked a tooth and fell on my face. I don't know. It's amazing to me with my lack of grace and coordination that that was a toy that didn't kill me in my childhood. I also remember like in my tween years, the Furby being a thing. And when I was in high school, this isn't something I wanted, but I remember people going crazy for Tickle Me Elmo. That's a creepy toy. I do not know why everybody was hunting that toy down. But we, we are people of times and places, and you can reminisce with people your age about the thing that was the thing, right? Or you can sometimes talk to people of another generation and they look at you and they have no understanding. I, I brought up 9-11 recently with some students and realized that we're at a point where they weren't alive. I, I just, I felt my age in that moment. But they have no concept because they weren't here. So we are people of times and places. We also live in a, in a day and age where we don't have to wait for much. You can pop something in the microwave and have dinner in three minutes. You can Amazon Prime something and have it, thank the Lord, that evening. <laughs> I have some friends that recently moved a little further away from the Amazon hub and she said, I think the hardest thing is now I have to wait for my Amazon packages. We don't, we don't usually have to, to wait for things. In fact, I read an article that streaming services are starting to go back to like a week by week delivery of shows because people would just binge the show. They didn't want to wait. So they'd watch like the whole season in a day and then be like angsty because it took a year to get the next season. And I was like, oh, wow, we are people that are very driven by time, but God is not. And this is especially difficult about understanding how God is when we walk through difficult things. In fact, author and Bible teacher Jen Wilkin wrote a book called None Like Him, 10 Ways that we are different or that God is different from us. And she says this, we look around at the times and seasons and ask, where is the beauty of God? Uh, where is the beauty God is bringing from this? We expect him to make everything beautiful in our time. But the one who determines the beginnings and the end does not operate according to our timelines. We will, he will work all things according to his purposes. Every sorrow or harm we suffer will be redeemed for good, but sometimes it takes more than one lifetime for the ugly to be made beautiful. But that is no light thing. It is also not a vain promise. And so we live in the tension of knowing that God is everlasting.
of knowing that God will make it good, that he will redeem it. Like that song that we sang, your goodness. God, I've lived in your goodness. That's true. But we also live in the midst of really hard things as well. So God is the author of creation. In fact, I tell my students sometimes, even in light of the conversation of gender, that is so culturally a conversation right now, if we boil this down into the fact that like it's rules and winning an argument or, or whatever, we miss the point. The reason we as Christians care about gender is because we, made a, we serve a God who made both genders. We are then embodied in a way reflecting who God is and that's why we care about this conversation. Because it comes back to the fact that God is the author. And that brings us to point two, which then if he's the author, it means he is sovereign over creation. He rules it. He is king over it. It's like the manufacturer writing the operating instructions for whatever it is you purchase. Unless it's something from Ikea, that is where this analogy goes to die. But Psalm 95, verses 1 through 7 says, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving. Extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Not only did he make it, but he rules it. And think about in politics, how we might engage a little differently if we didn't worry and stress about who got in and who didn't, whether it's our country or another country, because God is ruling over everything. Nothing, no ruler, no rise or fall is going to thwart the purpose and rule of our God. Now that doesn't mean we're not engaged. It doesn't mean we don't know from, from scripture why we believe what we believe and how we engage the way we engage. But I don't worry and I don't stress because I know who's holding the world in his hands. I know whose timeline cannot be interrupted by an elephant or a donkey. That wouldn't be a very big God. So see, understanding that not only is he the author, but he is the sovereign ruler of creation should stir in us two responses. The first is that as my maker and king, it is God who decides what is right about this world and what is right about me. So when someone comes to scripture and they say, I don't like that, we have a tendency to feel like they are saying to us or rejecting us, or we get very personally like, worked up about this, but this isn't me. I didn't set what's right or wrong. There are things I would like to be different about maybe what God said, but I don't get to control this. I come to this and I surrender to who God is 
because he decides what is moral and not moral. He decides what is right and what is wrong. In fact, why do we seek justice? Why do we desire unity? Why do we say love is such a good thing? Because we're made in the image of the one who created it all. I'm not running the universe. If I did, that 535 ferry would have taken off this morning. Maybe that's why you're all such a humble, gracious people, because you live with the ferry system and you know you're not in control. (laughs) Seeing God is working good in your life for all of the evil that has occurred. But my identity is also not mine to control. So if I feel one way or I identify another way, those feelings get sacrificed on the altar of truth because my king is my king and he decides. My hopes and my dreams and my wishes, I bring that to God. And sometimes he graciously answers those things the way I want him to, and sometimes he doesn't. But whichever answer I get, he has answered, and I submit to that. The other way that our response is moved by understanding that God is our creator and our ruler is that it causes us to worship him despite external circumstances. And that's what good theology does. The more we rightly understand God, the more we are just prone to worship him. And I I hope you're in agreement here because we're going to hit our most uh, theological point from Genesis chapter 1. And that not only do we see that God is creator, author, and ruler, we also get a sense of how God is in Genesis 1. And we see in this third response that God is triune, that he is a trinity. And so... Let's talk about that. I mean, each one of these points could be a separate message, right? I'm, I'm doing my best as I watch that time tick down. I'm like, okay. But when we say that God is a trinity, when we say that God is three in one, that he's three persons in one, even if you've heard that language, when we use the idea of persons, we're not meaning physical beings. That's not why we use that word. We use the word person to to give us the idea that God is personal, that he is relational, that there are three relational aspects of who God is, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we hear that when we read Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. I mean, have you ever wondered why we seek unity the way we do? Why like the best beauty pageant answer has always been like world peace. Because this concept of unity is at the very core of who God is that he is three and one. Now, every analogy about the Trinity, because it is so unlike anything we have in our world, if you press it too hard, it starts to fall apart. Like, how many of you heard, like, the egg analogy growing up in church, right? Like, you've got, like, the shell and the egg white and the egg yolk, and that's fine if you're, like, this tall, right? Because we need abstract concepts. 
But see, you can take all those pieces of an egg and divide them out. You can't do that with God, right? Or how about like the water? Like God is like water and steam and solid ice, okay? That's good if you're about this tall because he can't be all three of those at one time, right? So here's the one that I think if we're this tall works for us. It's a triangle. See, I necessarily have three, but I also necessarily have one in order to have a triangle. So someone's like, how can the Trinity be a thing? Oh, it's math, don't worry about it. Probably wasn't your subject in school. I'm just starting. don't get snarky. Don't get snarky with people. I missed a ferry this morning or you know, it quit on me, so I'm a little sassy already. <clears throat> so A, angle A is not angle B. Angle B is not angle C. These are distinct from each other, and yet they all are needed to have one triangle. They share the properties here of the triangle. We get this. So God is triune. He is relational. From the beginning of time, he existed in perfect love and perfect unity. And he chose to create. See, we don't rightly understand him as a ruler if we don't first really understand how he is. Because if we just jump to the sovereign and the ruler, we can kind of think divine dictator. But understanding how he is at his essence, in his being, that it's love and it's unity, and that's the type of sovereign creator that he is. And that puts everything into perspective. So in our last few minutes, I want to I wanna get to this fourth, this fourth, fourth piece that we, we've already kind of hit on a little bit. That God is our creator. He is our ruler. This is how he exists. But at the moment, God is resting from his creative work. You know what's interesting when you do take time, which you should all do this week, to read Genesis 1 and 2 for yourself you will notice that every morning, except for day seven, or every day, has, and there was morning and there was evening. But we don't hear that language on day seven. That's an interesting kind of tidbit to hold on to. So, so think about what's said here in Genesis 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the creative, the work of creating that he had done. See, God has still ceased from his work of creating. Isaiah 65 says it this way. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things not, will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. See, while God finished the original work of creating, and while he is not recreating right now, the hope that we have is that one day he will pick up that work of creating again. And that he is going to recreate. He is going to ultimately redeem. He is going to ultimately restore. Yes, it is finished on the cross and that sin was defeated, but the work of restoration, the work of final redemption, that is only just the first fruits that we see in Jesus. We are waiting for the harvest time. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. 
if you have your Bibles or if you have your electronic devices, or you can just listen to the beauty that is encapsulated in these verses. We're going to read verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away he who was seated on the throne said I am making everything new then he said write this down for these words are trustworthy and true he said to me it is done I am the alpha and the omega the beginning and the the end to the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God and they will be my children but the cowardly the unbelieving the vile the murderers the sexually immoral those who practice magic arts the idolaters and all liars they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur this is the second death would have been nice if we just stopped reading in verse 7 right and trust me i was tempted to but here's the promise you persevere in this life through the help of the holy spirit Enduring hardship, enduring the pain. Romans uh, tells us that the world is even growing. The earth is even groaning under the weight of the curse, waiting for Christ to come back. We groan in the brokenness of this world, waiting for Christ to come back and to begin that work of recreating and fully restoring. And that promise is to those who receive him. And we love to phrase the other category, verse 8, as God sending those people to hell. And we choose that language sometimes because that takes all the accountability off of us. Well, if I'm just being sent, I have no control. I have no say. But, but here's the reality. God is saying, I created you. I chose you. I chased you. I've redeemed you. I have sought you. I have pursued you. I love you. Everything has been about you. And if you say, no, I don't want that, then when he picks up that mantle of recreating and restoring, and you've said, I don't want you, then he will say, okay, well, then you don't get me. It's like we lock our doors at night because our home is not for the whole neighborhood. And depending on where you live, that's a very important thing. And he is inviting. He's saying, come. Come, you who are thirsty, come. I'll give you the water of life. What more could we ask God to do to usher us into this promise? But he won't force it. But he says to those who persevere, friend, if you are persevering through some things, don't lose hope because our God is creator. Our God is sovereign. Our God is triune. 
And our God is going to finish the, the full work that he has planned to do. Don't lose hope. This is who God is. This is what God has done in the past. It's what he is still doing right now. And it's what he is going to do in the future. The question for all of us is how will we respond to that? What will you do with who God has revealed himself to be? Man, if you don't know him, if you've not come into relationship with him, that invitation is just permeating the air. Like, come to me. That's, that's, that's everything about this book. Would you come, would you receive the water of life, the bread of life, the resurrection? Would you receive it? And after we've received it, our job is to walk with Jesus in that hope. And that nothing that breaks up against the ship of life that we are sailing, no matter how big the wave, no matter what the ship crashes into, that we do not lose hope. We might arrive at the end on just a piece of driftwood, but arrive we will if we are in Christ. And to those who persevere, this is the promise of God from the beginning. That's why we're going to start here. And it's going to be a good study in Genesis. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you so much that you are sovereign, that you are the one who from the beginning to the end is in control of all things. But yet you are not far off. You are not unattached. God, you are our loving Father, you are our loving ruler. So God, would you help us to trust that? God, would you help us to hold to that? You are our living hope. And so God, for whatever people are, are wrestling through right now, whatever difficulties, whatever hardships, we don't make light of those things because they are hard. But God, would you not let us lose sight of you in all of the fog, in all of the storms? God, would you just reassure us of your goodness and your love and the hope that we have in you? In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us? Such a powerful song, yet not I but Christ in me. What gift of grace, Jesus, my Redeemer. There is no more heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom. My steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hope, my hope is only Jesus. For my life is wholly bound to Him. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing. All is mine and not I, but through Christ. 
Every breath. 